warning. Gloves, goggles, and common sense required at all times. This is the Blackwater EvaCost. It took less than a week for me to regret the decision to dismiss my driver. Not that I had the opportunity. The mysterious thing from my past which I still irrationally felt hunting me had not made an appearance, but the grey stripe had certainly been active. You will recall that after returning to the mainland, I successfully retrieved the desired artifact from the Monroe collection and left that tower house with some haste. I required a head start because, due to the structure of the highlands, all reasonable paths to Glen Shee, and in fact most of Scotland, began from there by traveling south, then east, inland. There would have been no question about which road I had taken, because there was only one useful road. That one useful road led with certainty to one useful nexus of travel, the town of Banavie. With any luck, they would not as yet have realized my true identity, and thus have little idea regarding where I went from there. I would need to reach Banavie before they did. I sent the driver to the pub to idle in his preferred manner while I considered the options. The Banavie extension of the West Highland Line would allow me to reach Glasgow in speed and comfort, and from there it would be simple to reach Blackwater Castle by the usual means. A more convoluted path, but one thereby more likely to confuse pursuers, would be to board a vessel traveling up Neptune's staircase, the series of hydraulic locks which leads to the Caledonian Canal through the Great Glen. At its eastern end, I would sail around the coast to Dundee, where, as you know, I have resources. This would be a very slow method indeed, though in retrospect it might have saved me a great deal of trouble. The roads were obviously heavily watched, and I wouldn't be able to tell who was watching at a given moment. Hiring or purchasing a motor car would have attracted too much attention from anyone looking for me, and my driver would be easily recognized sitting on a coach. All paths led to discharging him, so I returned to the pub to do so. He wasn't there. The few who were watched as I entered, round-eyed and clearly shaken. I was intentionally less intimidating than usual that day, so something else must have happened. When I inquired of the barkeep where my normally sedentary driver had got to, he visibly flinched stammering in tones that made him sound like a boy afraid of being caught talking out of school, he eventually conveyed his story. Several minutes before I arrived, a pair of men in grey cloaks entered and approached the driver, who was cheerfully finishing his second pint. A brief quiet conversation was followed by a brief quiet argument, and just as the driver raised his voice, one of the men struck him. They dragged his senseless body out the front door, and that was all the barkeep knew. He didn't know the cloaked men, but had sent for a policeman so that he could describe them. The table had not yet been touched. There would be plenty of evidence for an investigator to pour through, but all I needed to see to be convinced was the spilled cup and drops of blood on the table and nearby floor. I had no interest in being present when the police arrived. I told the barkeep to be sure to mention the gears on their lapels and turned to go. As I did, the man held up his index finger and said, Wait, how? Though I was confident that the weather had delayed my pursuers reaching Banavie as much as it had myself, a telegraph suffers no such difficulty. 
Whether the gray stripe agents came from nearby or merely happened to be in the vicinity, I had no idea. Nor did it really matter. If they didn't know who I was before, the driver would certainly tell them soon, and that further narrowed my choices. In fact, anything reasonable would be easily expected. I would have to do the unreasonable. As I calculated my options, I noticed the peak of Ben Nevis looming in the southeast. What would be less expected of a lone baron in the highlands during winter than traveling on foot? It didn't look much like a crossroads, but the automaton insisted that it was, and that it was there to guard it. Why anyone would want to guard the intersection of an ancient road and a deer trail is, even now, quite beyond me. I first noticed the bicycle, leaning against a tree, with ice and snow caked on it from the storm a few days previous. It was an odd design, apparently made so that the rider sat in a reclined position, and I wondered how well it would travel at speed, as well as how long it had been there. As I approached it, a man-sized automaton stepped from behind another tree to block my path. It was somewhat outlandishly dressed in an open coat, breeches, and boots, and swayed drunkenly on its two legs. Halt. My initial thought was to try affability. Oh, hello. What the devil are you doing out here? This weather should be worse on you than me. I tried to go around the thing, but it obstinately blocked me, surprisingly agile in motion, though wobbly when still. I explained that I simply wanted to examine the bicycle. It only responded with the occasional, Halt! I became determined to not only examine, but to use the bicycle in my travels, both because it would be far faster than walking, and because something was trying to keep me from it. I eventually shrugged and feigned defeat. All right, I said. I leave the contraption to you. And I turned to leave. With startling speed, the automaton ran in front of me. Halt! Really? This was very strange. I attempted to leave the opposite direction, and then down each arm of the deer trail, all to the same effect. An automaton tends to be both strong and dangerous, simply due to the weight of the construct, but rather than any fear, I felt growing irritation. The paths crossed at an area largely shadowed and still snowy. As a result, I was in no mind to needlessly pause. What is the meaning of this? I demanded. I guard the crossroad. Oh, good. You can manage other words. Look, you can have your crossroad. You can even have your bicycle. I simply need to get down into the valley over there, and I would prefer to do it soon. The sun is getting near the horizon. However, the thing wouldn't let me leave, in any direction. I don't think you understand how guarding is supposed to work. What do you want in order to let me through? I must say the passphrase. You mean, I must say the passphrase. Yes, master. I must say the passphrase. I see. So, how do I get this passphrase? It is here. The machine pointed to words printed on its chest, exposed above the coat. Really? That's... suspiciously easy. So what does it say? Gorgon Tame E. Farafula Summit Loy I paused, waiting for recognition of its cue to let me pass. Well? I must say the passphrase. Mm, so say it. 
It is not currently in my nature, master. Strange wording, but this was a strange machine. Thus did I find myself in a remote highland location, playing a lunatic game with an automaton of questionable logic and bizarre eloquence. As I engaged the thing in conversation, I built a small fire near a convenient log and sat. Master, why do you build a fire? It is a winter's evening in the mountains, and I do not foresee making progress from this spot any time soon. Master is cold? Only on the inside. This is a ridiculous place to guard. How long have you been here? Four days. Oh, a lucky timing on my part. Or not. You must have arrived here just after I began my long walk. You are an advanced, if possibly damaged, construct, but your parts look as if you are not recently made, the sort of thing the Grey Stripe would greedily collect. And yet you are assigned a post that will do your parts no more good than mine. Were you sent to intercept me by the Grey Stripe? I was not sent by any color of stripe. I am to prove myself to my king. Edward sent you. That seems vanishingly unlikely. Of late he has been dealing with Parliament and has little time to suddenly take interest in me. Or are you from an overseas power? Who would make such an absurd interception of my travels? I began in Scotland, Master, and have never traveled over more water than a river. I can't tell if you are dodging or defective. In any case, it seems pointless to call me master if you've no intention of following my instructions. The human is always the natural master of the mechanical device. Yes, well, yes. That is certainly the natural order of things. However, I am clearly not your master any more than the prisoner is the master of the lock in his cell door. Look, I recognize that you have to call me something. As usual, your communication design insists upon it, and I certainly don't have a general objection to be called master. It suits me well in any of its meanings. It used to bother me when I was a schoolboy. Yes, even then, other boys, impressed with my natural facility with clockwork and mechanical devices, would occasionally call me master, as though I was a recognized expert in such matters already, and I was their instructor. Both were rapidly becoming true, but I did not yet comprehend how it could coexist with my generally outcast status. Since then, I have come to accept my mastery in its many aspects, and even revel in it. I do not demand the title, nor even suggest its use, nor object when it comes. Some call me master very naturally, yet few outside my household address me thus, and only some within. My lord generally suffices there and elsewhere, and some, especially those who don't know me, insist on Lord Blackwater. But I'll tell you something. One of my great but silent victories has been to convince nearly everyone of my acquaintance to call me Baron. Normally, it's an odd, almost familiar form of address for a nobleman. If I had a wife, she might call me Baron. It's the sort of thing that confuses non-Englishmen who sometimes ask me about it when I travel. And I've begun to wonder about the custom myself. Regardless, almost everyone, peers, employees, enemies, calls me Baron. I am uncertain how many of them are consciously aware of their own departure from convention by doing so. I should call you Baron rather than Master. It makes more sense. Your machine's logic likely requires some kind of honorific, 
so it will do. Why are you walking alone during winter, Baron? It wasn't really my plan. I had to leave town in a direction no one was looking. With some haste, most of my luggage was sent home by cargo post, and I quickly purchased hiking gear and set out. Come to think of it, there is no way anyone in the Grey Stripe, let alone any government agency or heroic group, could have known I would take this route. I entirely mistrust anything which looks like chance, but at this point I have no other explanation for our meeting. Yes, but why did you have to leave and hide? So many questions. You have yet to explain why you are out here. Yes, you are guarding the sad excuse for a crossroads. Who sent you? I don't want a title, I want a name. Even taking into account the errors and oddness, your discursive abilities are remarkable, far too valuable to send into highland winter weather for no reason. The machine looked away and didn't answer for a moment. It gave every impression of being... embarrassed. I sent myself. I must prove myself. I must demonstrate my way as better, or another will come to take my place. Ah, there's a sentiment I can understand. A rivalry of wits is wonderfully inspiring. Lights a fire in one's sense of purpose. Yes, but what about my rival? Shall I stop him if I can? I say, continue on your course, and let the other continue on his. Sometimes rivals, who are not always enemies, are best left to their own devices, and allowed to perform whatever absurd activities they have planned. I make use of this myself on occasion. My own methods are demonstrated as superior by simple comparison. But if I stop the other from completing his plans, there will always be the question, and that question prevents the unquestioned authority of my intellectual powers. As enjoyable as it is to thwart another by direct means, if I am sure of my superiority, I have nothing to fear, and may achieve a more thorough victory. Is your rival an automaton of some dread power and unassailable logic? No. Then you have little cause for concern by the contest. It would seem that I have little cause for concern regarding your intentions, except insofar as they interrupt my progress. And how did you get out here anyway? I can vouch that it is a fair distance to walk from any direction. The automaton turned and gestured to the other machine present, the unusual-looking bicycle. I rode from the south. I glanced at the pass just south of us. You rode up the Devil's Staircase on that? Ah, to have the tireless energy of an automaton. But such a strained-looking bicycle, it must have been made for your personal chassis. No, it was made for humans. The design was for comfort but it allows me to apply pressure in a more useful direction and gain speed with less energy. I was doubtful and mentally chalked it up to a specialized arrangement for a bipedal machine. Aloud, I said, Hmm, well, any sort of traveling aid would have been useful these past several days. At least this time I can remember what happened. Baron has forgotten the previous journey? Yes. I have been thinking about it more and more of late, and have even retraced my steps in an attempt to summon again either my memories or whatever obscured them. Neither has come to pass. I've come to no conclusions. Perhaps elucidating it to you will bring me some understanding. Almost exactly forty years ago, I happened upon an ingenious device. Well, more than simply a device. When I comprehended its function, I was most intrigued. When I realized its potential, 
I understood that not only would its previous owner come looking for it, anyone with an understanding of power would do anything to possess it and its secrets. I was not at that time able to analyze all of its components, particularly the chemicals involved, and I absolutely did not want to be found in its possession until I had more thorough protection, nor to allow any other access to it. The clear imperative from my point of view was to hide the thing in the most unlikely place I could find. The rural, isolated, nearly forgotten island of St. Kilda in the Outer Hebrides was my choice, and there I hid it in a long-disused storage hut in the remotest part of that remote island. During the return trip, I could not shake the impression that I was being followed. There are, and were, few roads to choose from in order to reach the more populous parts of Scotland from the northwestern coast, but those that exist take rather different routes, and a pursuer guessing the wrong one even briefly would be unlikely to find me again. I was vigilant, and never saw evidence of being successfully followed. An overnight stop at Aberfeldy brought a strange dream, or I thought it was a dream, and rationally must still, though dreams by definition can have no physical interaction with the waking world. Allow me to describe it. I woke in the middle of the night to a brightness entering the room around the window's curtain edges. I pulled them back to see the River Tay and the fields beyond lit by the moon, only two days past full. Even so, it seemed brighter than even a full moon should be. Spring would begin in another two days, and I had the absurdly romantic impression that the fields, the trees, even the river, were waiting until then to burst into new life. A spring fade can make things very bright. A what? Look, if you're going to interrupt, at least make sense. The Austrian does that to me all the time, you know. Apoldi, I mean. Leopold. An old associate of mine. I usually refer to him as the Austrian, though in person he insists on Poldi. He can't resist throwing a wrench into my train of thought to see what happens. And now I've lost track of what I was saying here. You were telling me about the brightness of the fields. Good heavens. That's not quite Poldi, but stop that. Yes, the brightness. That romanticized impression of the fields continued as I looked out of the window, and I began to think in my dreaming mind that it was calling for me to join it. Without another thought, I donned a dressing gown and found my way to a small bridge, deserted at that hour, which led me to where the fields met the trees by the river. I felt a strong curiosity about the riverbank, a relatively steep section of it in particular. Carefully descending to its base, I was somewhat disappointed at finding absolutely nothing of interest. Then something caught my attention, a slight purple glow seen just at the corner of my eye. I turned to look at it, but saw nothing other than the little cliff beside me. Then I woke up in my rented room. Though not alone, a doctor was present, as well as my anxious-looking coach driver. I felt fully healthy and rested, and, after fending off a variety of impertinent questions, finally got some sort of explanation as to what was going on. I had been found that morning lying on the grass at the top of the riverbank, no more than two dozen yards from the place I had last remembered dreaming about. I seemed perfectly comfortable, though impossible to wake, and so they brought me back to the guest house to see what should be done. Nothing, obviously, was my opinion, and though I had never been known to sleepwalk before, I couldn't imagine what the fuss was all about. The great mystery of the thing was that it was not one morning later, but three, 
I had disappeared the evening of my bright moon dream, and had been spotted sleeping by revelers still celebrating the vernal equinox. Could I remember anything between the two, the doctor kept asking. There was nothing. It was the blank emptiness of sleep outside the vivid dream of the moonlit night. I could remember faint impressions of one other dream, a vague swirl of earnest nonsensical discussion with pale people in strange clothing, no useful clue to where I had wandered. My long sleep had at least removed the hunted feeling from hanging over me, but to be safe, I left and returned to my castle as soon as the doctor could be satisfied enough to stop pestering me. Once there, I attended to issues of defense and intelligence, and continued to do so for over a year. I had accepted my villainous nature many years previously, and have always lived in a fortified mansion, which is what modern castles really are. As such, self-defense is a martyr of course in my mind. Yet the implications of the now-hidden device, the determination those who would covet it would have, brought a clarity to the subject I had never had. My obsession was less isolating and less brief than when I shut myself away from the world following my parents' deaths, but it was as productive. You've been a villain your whole life? You're a bad person? Certainly I am. So are most. The difference is, I recognize it and do not deceive myself otherwise. It gives me a great advantage in understanding the world and its denizens. It also allows me to tell the truth more than most good people do. But that is a different topic. Don't distract me. There was more that I discovered after my self-imposed exile, which I could not have predicted. I added another stick of wood to the fire and leaned in slightly toward the very still, attentive form of the automaton. Since my journey to St. Kilda, I had changed. I had ceased to age. No, that's not quite right. My physical aging has nearly stopped. My bodily health has slowly regressed toward its peak. Until now I have the strength and form of a thirty-five-year-old man, and a vigorous one at that. My mind has likewise become more agile and able, rather than declining with years. And during that time I have advanced my abilities and my influence. My appearance has aged slightly in the interim, but by a mere few years, not the forty that have actually passed. I have improved by any useful metric, and am more dangerous than I have ever been. Yet I cannot remember the cause, and I cannot begin to guess the reason, if there is one. I begin to suspect it has to do not with St. Kilda or the strange device, but the dream I had and the days that I somehow skipped. This journey was meant to revive lost memories. Instead, it has led, at this point, to being chased all over the highlands and stopped by the strangest automaton I have yet to see. It's enough to give me thoughts over another trip to America. Did you enjoy your trip to the New World, Baron? All right. What is it with these accents? You're making me crazy. Well, crazier. Why shoot fire? Don't get all riled up at me. You started it. What do you mean I started it? Oh. Oh. I see. When I mention a place, you sound like it. More or less. A strange sort of empathy feature, is it? No, no, don't answer that right now. Answer this instead. Can I be more specific? California, for example. Certainly, Baron. That's a relief. You know, you'd be very popular at one of the Earl's soirees, far more interesting than anything in his collection. 
You should come with me. I could use an assistant like you, especially when it comes to distracting people at a party. I must continue to demonstrate my ability. It was worth a try. Have you been to London? You might enjoy it. I ain't green. It's no right place for a thinking machine. No, perhaps not. Look, I'll need to continue my journey in the morning. I'd be most grateful if you would... Oh, I don't know. Look the other way for a while. Preferably away from both the road south and the bicycle. Go and take me for a fool or something, Lloyd. Oh, I see. It settled back, entirely inert and still. There was no question of continuing before morning. I had fulfilled the strange game's requirements. It was time to simply sleep. In the morning, the automaton was gone. I tracked its footprints through the snow and muddy ice to see which direction it was traveling. It had begun walking north along the road, but didn't get very far. According to the tracks, at a certain point it fell over to one side and vanished before hitting the ground. I'd had my fill of mysteries in the icy wilderness. I took the automaton's strange bicycle and took the road south, down through the Devil's Staircase and away east as soon as possible. The automaton was right. This strangely configured bicycle was excellent for long-distance traveling. Blackwater Aethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Kayla Thomas. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Victor. They can be found at dbvictor.bandcamp.com. Follow the Baron on Instagram at Baron Blackwater. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening. Pity he didn't take that trail in the spring. The flowers are lovely just now.